1: Andrew Horonich is back with us for part two of our interview on his now-released book, Once Loved, Always Loved, The Logic of Apocatastasis. And uh, Andrew, how has your book been received so far?
2: Uh, Well, David, I have to say it's, it's kind of amazing. I mean, this was a project two years in the making. And just a few weeks ago, Jerry Walls, who's been a notable defender of the traditionalist view, Posted, quote, Horonich's book is not only intelligently argued, but also the most thoroughly and passionately argued case I'm aware of, end quote. So that's coming from someone who's defended a view opposed to mine for the past several decades. And so I think that's just amazing that he would provide that sort of endorsement on social media. And after he posted um, that endorsement, there was a lot of discussion on his Facebook groups and other Facebook groups among Christian philosophers, such as uh, Dale Tuggy and Father Aidan Kimmel, actually. I uh, went up reposting my book and just, oh, it's been amazing. It's been amazing, I have to say. Charles Taliaferro, uh, who's a notable uh, Christian philosopher over in England, recently read my book cover to cover, thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, Randall Rouser is another uh, fo- apologist that many folks probably know from youtube who i actually is interviewing me later this evening on this book and found it very thought-provoking and um i actually had what's most interesting is a lot of people might know uh and christian apologist by the name of frank turek and recently at one of his conferences someone who had read my book brought an objection from my book against his view <laughs> <laughs> I felt very flattered. Um, so I have to say that there has been a lot of positive feedback in regards to my book, but it's not without its detractors. There are some, for example, who complained that this wasn't more um, lay folk addressed or that this did not uh, was not proctored towards um, lay folks. And that uh, that's because, of course, it wasn't. <laughs> that, that wasn't my intention, right, to direct this book towards lay folks. It was more so towards analytically minded individuals. So um, that was one of the only really stark negative uh comments also there was father rooney who made sure to say that uh the reason why i held my views or seemed like he was saying was because i was a calvinist or a former calvinist and so he's he blames universalism on the Calvinists. and so i just think that the genetic fallacy right even if that is true um that that's how the belief originated for me that doesn't mean the belief itself is false right so uh, but i'll just leave it to father Rooney <laughs> to make genetic fallacies. so yeah a bit of a mixed feedback right there
1: all right. Well, in our, our first interview on your book, we covered divine foreknowledge, Molinism, or middle knowledge, and open theism. We also tackled the question of whether or not all people can rightly be considered to be children of God. And you affirm that 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 is something that we can that that we can say. And now I'd like to continue on towards issues that you address in the latter part of your book. So let's turn now to an interesting theory proposed by some infernalists who say that God will solve the problem of our sorrow in heaven over those who are eternally lost by simply erasing their memories from our minds. So my first question to you is, what about God in heaven erasing from the minds of the saved the memory of those who are not saved?
2: yeah so, um, I want to back up a little bit to my childhood when this was actually a question that just came intuitively to my mind I mean the idea that, well, what about my friends and family who are in hell? How can I be in happy in heaven, knowing about them? Mm-hmm. And I just thought of it myself, well, perhaps I won't know about their fate, perhaps I won't know of their doings there and I didn't read William Lane Craig that just came to me as a child, so I do have to admit that there is something intuitive about. Um, this assertion, but I don't think it necessarily worked for several reasons. Uh, firstly, is because I would think that heavenly existence includes richer cognitive capacities and states, and not necessarily, not necessarily more deficient. So, for example, if you look to 1 Corinthians 13, 10-12, Paul says, But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So it's very hard for me to read a passage like that and then walk away thinking that, well, actually we'll have a more deficient cognitive state than what this verse seems to indicate. So that's the first thing to have in mind. Also, you have in Hebrews twelve one you have a mention of the great cloud of witnesses by which we're surrounded. So it'd be kind of odd if you were someone like Dr. Craig, who seems to be open to the idea of apostasy, that you have this great cloud of witnesses who are watching you. And then you stumble and fall, right? You apostatize, you go to hell. And then they, uh, they, they. I mean, so exactly what happens at this point, right? They no longer know about you. I mean, I don't understand how this works. Like practically, I want people to imagine the scenario that we're talking about. Say that there's an individ- a couple that's married for 50 years, okay? But um, the individual, let's call this individual Tom, he, he lived for 82 years. All right. So 50 of the 82 years he's married and the person he married goes to hell. So what does God do? Does he wipe out? All 50 years, or is it just the 50 years that contains the moments with his bride? All right, so, but how does that work? So is Tom, when he's at the altar, is he holding someone's hand and putting the ring on someone's hand, or is, or is there nobody there in that memory of his marriage, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: or instead of there being no individual present, does God conjure up a completely different individual than who his true bride was and put that individual in place of his, who his actual wife? in his marriage memory right so if that is the case then it seems like god is involved in deception okay so there's a problem that this makes god out to seem like a deceiver um so yeah there's a lot of other problems uh with this view uh one is the question of divine impassibility because if it is such that as craig suggests perhaps god keeps this big dark secret in his heart and Craig also uh, denies divine impassibility, then you have a problem, because then it would seem that our joy in heaven consists of participation in the divine, or the divine joy. And if that is the case, and God is not truly, like, supremely happy, but God is grieved over the state of the loss, then you're going to have individuals who are grieved, and perhaps they don't even know why they're necessarily grieved. But if their joy comes through participation in the divine joy, and the divine joy is kind of tainted by the grief that comes through the damned, then there's a problem for supremely worthwhile happiness on account of the blessed, even if they don't know about the state of the damned. So that's another interesting thing to take into account. Finally, Craig suggests, well, maybe individuals, it's that they're so enraptured by their beatific vision and union with God that they kind of put out of mind the state of the damned, Now, this is really odd to me, right? Because it seems to me that the more conscious you are of God, the more conscious you are of your fellow neighbor or the other, right? And so the idea that you're going to be so enraptured with God that you'll just forget about the rest of his creation, especially those who are languishing and suffering, is just frankly to me unbiblical. I mean, we know that those who say that they love God and yet they do not love their neighbor are a liar, as the New Testament uh, tells us. And so I just don't find this particular view that's prop up by craig and others as simply adequate to answering this question of the problem of heavenly grief
1: well what if the heaven in heaven the saved still remember the damned but they actually celebrate their damnation especially if they have become remorseless reprobates and killers
2: (laughs) yeah so um some people i remember i had a professor at liberty university who he actually thought this was plausible and that this could be the case, which may scare some people who are sending their applications into liberty, right? Uh, But he was a nice guy. Um, So some people get this idea from the book of Revelation, where, for example, you have the saints rejoice at the fall of Babylon. But there's some things that I want to point out. So um, the fall of Babylon, as I see it, is only a finite punishment or finite pain or point of suffering that This system and these individuals involved in the system endure. So it's one thing to rejoice at the fall of Nazi Germany and another to rejoice at the infinite suffering of those engaged and who participated in the evils of Nazi Germany. Those are not the same thing, right? And so I think it's just disingenuous to confuse those two together. All right, but is it true, as Jonathan Edwards and Thomas Aquinas and others seem to say, right, that we will rejoice in the suffering of others? Now, to be clear, what I mean by that, I have is that they say we'll be rejoicing in the demonstration of God's justice, right? So it's not that we're rejoicing directly in their suffering. It's rejoicing indirectly through uh, rejoicing in the manifestation of God's justice through his wrath against these individuals, right? I I know it's kind of bizarre, but we got to spell it out, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Right, okay. So um, this might be helpful for listeners. Now, imagine that you have a child, right, An, an adult child who commits an egregious crime. And your child is sentenced to a maximum security prison with no chance of uh, parole and no chance of visitation. Now, even if you recognize that justice is being served in this case, you still might suffer uh, justifiably due to the separation and loss of union with your child. Right? I'm thinking of, for example, Tom Talbot points out about a certain serial killer, Ted Bundy who even after all the horrors that he perpetrated against others, his mother was still wrought at the fate of her son, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think it could still be the case that there are parents who, even though they recognize that the fate of their child is just, they're still wrecked with being separated from that child. I can testify personally that there have been occasions in my own personal life with individuals in my family who they've gone through a lot and, and they have harmed other people who I hold dearly. And so part of me wishes that, you know, that, justice was quote-unquote served. but At the same time, I recognize that if that were to be the case, then there would be that loss of separation union with that individual, right? So it's it's a very complex thing. Uh, But I'm reminded of Matthew Hart in Calvinism and the Problem of Evil. I remember when I encountered this book, I messaged Tom Talbot, what do you think about this book? And he said it was absolutely diabolical. Uh, Where Matthew Hart said that we will rejoice in the suffering of the damned, uh, Do from gratitude through appreciation of the likelihood and frequency of the alternative. So, in other words, the more the merrier. I mean, the more people in hell, the happier David Artman and Andrew Haradish will be, <laughs> because we'll recognize, oh my gosh, it, you know, it it could have been us. And look at how many people went up there. I mean, the frequency in which people were damned. Wow. And we we were delivered from that. This is incredible. And so we'll rejoice on the more. This is ridiculous. Okay, um, like there's such a thing as survivor's guilt that I think people like Matthew Hart need to be more aware of. So if you have a platoon of soldiers, for example, in Iraq, which many can testify to this being the case, where the entire platoon gets wiped out except for the individual, they don't rejoice and say, oh, thank God. Thank God I was delivered. Thank God. I mean, some people get really depressed and they experience survivor's guilt and many of them become suicidal. Right. So far Mm -hmm. from feeling a great sense of joy, they feel a great sense of guilt. Um, So it's one thing It's one thing to imagine people that you don't know, I guess, is the idea that Matthew Hart is presenting in Jonathan Edwards, uh, the frequency of other people who you're not really attached to falling while you yourself are delivered. And so it would be kind of like the Titanic goes down, and you don't know anybody else on board, but masses of them go down and you're delivered. I, I can kind of see in a warped sense why they would think, oh, man, you know, I was delivered from this. But imagine if your whole family was on board with you, all right now this brings in personal attachment. So your whole family is on board with you. And you have, let's say you have, like, I come from a family of seven kids, and four of your children die. Right? I don't think after that occasion you would say, oh, thank God, thank God I survived. I think you might think I would give anything to go in the place of my children, right? Um, so I think one of the things that's going on here is a detachment from personal relations with these other persons that are being damned.
1: What about uh, somebody who has, like, say, been terribly abused by somebody else? And so they might really enjoy seeing their abuser uh, getting um, this this type of punishment.
2: Yeah. Um, so this often comes up, I see, as an accusation against universalism, is that universalists disrespect uh, those who have been offended, right, those who have been violated by other persons, and uh, I think as Maril Slovvel, for example, wrote a book called "Exclusion and Embrace," in yeah. which he's he's um, a very interesting book, but which basically he makes the case for, um, an a wrathful God, if I can just put it that way. He says we kind of need that. Like imagine a war torn country, and you go there saying, you know, God cannot stop the invaders because God is not um, a god of co- uh, coercive power, right? But of that of persuasive love. And it seems like he's going against views like Thomas Jay Ord. Um, right. So I don't think those who are victims all the time are in the best place to make proper moral judgments, right? This has been the case with me when I'm wrong with somebody. I don't want an eye for an eye. I want a head for an eye in many cases, right? Uh, I'm not thinking clearly my clarity has been overruled in that moment. I'm thinking of spurned lovers, for example, who they lash out and they do things that are very inappropriate. Uh, And while I can understand the passion that's involved with that. If you're judging from a less subjective standard more objective you can look at that cadence say you know that's rather disproportionate so um i think that if we're to hold to the teachings of the new testament for example we're called to love our enemies too it and we're called to forgive them set not just seven times but seventy times seven times right and so we have multiple teachings in scripture that it may be uncomfortable for us um throughout all the ages of forgiving others of turning the other cheek but this is the christian way right this is the way that we're called to follow christ so yeah you, you want to ask something well i think
1: i think that we could also say that we could trust that the ju- that if we understand that the judgments of god that that god will have people to fully experience the remorse and whatever it is that they need to understand about the pain that they have truly caused that, that will that, that will need to be fully experienced in some way so that they can so that so that the person that had been abused by them can know that somehow they didn't get away with it, that they're that they really did um have to really understand and know the pain and suffering that they caused.
2: Yeah, I think it's more so of an emphasis on sanctification. Uh, Jerry Walls did an interview one time with Capturing Christianity in which he was asked, well, what about Hitler? He said, well, we need to remember that not only is there justification, but there's the opposite side of the coin, which is sanctification. And the sanctification, we're being made into the image of Christ, right? So let's take Hitler for example. So Hitler would be somebody who would be transformed into the image of Christ, somebody who would look upon the past wrongs that he did and hate them. Right, and consider them abominable, and will be of such a character that he could not do such things again. Right, and so um, you defeat your enemy by making him your friend. Goes back to Abraham Lincoln apocryphally, right, and this would be the case mm-hmm. with Hitler. And so I think that embracing Hitler would be more or less embracing somebody who was transformed into the image of Christ. And so we need to emphasize the question of uh, sanctification in this conversation. Um, I use the example two of um carlo and i, I can't remember the girl uh, in my book to to illustrate that of penance for example so i think in order to restore relationships there may need to be that idea of penance that let's say that carlo raped this one young woman and that um they went apart from each other they lived their separate lives and for a time carlo never really felt guilty for what he did but then once he had a family of his own and his own daughter he began to kind of realize the wrongs of what he'd done. And so now he seeks out reconciliation with that partner. Well, saying I'm sorry may not just be enough, you know, especially dependent upon the state of that individual who he wronged. And so, you know, perhaps making payments for helping that person, perhaps even handing himself over to the authorities, might be a way of mending that relationship, right? So it, it takes more than just saying I'm sorry, right, for what I did. And so I think that's what many people need to realize on Christian universalism. We're not saying that Hitler's in his bunker, prays the Christian prayer, shoots himself, and then goes straight to heaven, right? Like there's a time of purging and purification that happens in between by which he's transformed into the image of Christ.
1: I did an interview. Uh, well, it wasn't an interview. I, I heard an interview. I think it was Michael McClymond who was talking about you know Christian universalists say that uh, that finally uh, God will uh, win over everybody, um, but that if they don't want to, they don't want to come home. That God will torture them until they, you know, until they come in. And I think the person he was talking to was saying, sort of laughing, like, "Yeah, like waterboarded into heaven," and so that it would be like. Um, for people that really resolutely don't want to come to God, uh, wouldn't it be a denial of their free will somehow if God, you know, tortures them into heaven or, uh, you know, twist their arm behind their back, so to speak, spiritually uh, to make them so miserable that finally they just agree, you know, just to stop the pain. So what about uh, free will if we aren't free to ultimately disbelieve, then does our final belief actually mean anything?
2: Yeah, so I don't think God any more tortures the damned than the father of the prodigal tortured his son into getting him to come home, right? What the father of the prodigal son allowed the son to do is to experience the consequences of his actions. And that brought his son to his senses in which he returned home, right? Seeking out his father and the father's house. So I think that's exactly what happens with God is I think I agree with John Hick, with Augustine, with Christians through the ages, that uh, we are made for God, right? As Karl Barth would say, we are... God's humanity, like when we speak of God, we should speak of God's humanity. We speak of humanity, we should speak of humanity's God. So we have this bent or this inclination that's towards God. And I think that whether or not people know it, that through their actions, they are seeking out God, right? And in due time, they shall find him. And so with the problem of free will, I'm not saying that God is going to coerce individuals. I think this often happens is I hear all the time, well, God doesn't force people right into heaven. Mm -hmm. Well, I never said that he will, right? So I think that God is infinitely more resourceful than Sherlock Holmes. I think he's infinitely more resourceful than the ghost of Christmas past, present, and uh, future who visited uh, Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. I think that God is our creator who knows what to say and when to say it, what not to say. And he who made us in our mother's womb can bring us to that final goal of union with himself, right? What's interesting too, I think is that uh, many people, what they're postulating is this notion of hard heartedness, the idea that eventually these individuals in hell will solidify their character, right? To the point of no return. Mm -hmm. And I, I just don't get that. So what I would postulate is something like a transformative experience by which God can turn these persons to himself. So I know of individuals, for example, who were married to somebody and they were extroverts, right? Their personality was different than when that their loved one died. So when their loved one died, especially through a tragic means, their personality was just altered completely, right? I mean, they went from extrovert to introvert. So this is what I would call a transformative experience. A transformative experience could be you have some big, giant, burly guy um, who he goes to the gym every day right people always know him for his you know alpha male uh, characteristics but then all of a sudden he gets in a horrible accident and he's in a wheelchair for the rest of his life and his whole personality is changed everything about it. so that's a transformative experience so what i'm saying is that i think god can bring about positive transformative experiences that can bring about salvation in individuals so perhaps this can occur through a dream right maybe god gives positive sensations to a person about them coming to union with christ i mean we hear about visions like this in the middle east with those who encounter a christ-like figure perhaps god can do this with the damned um or i think about the case of nebuchadnezzar for example in the book of daniel who nebuchadnezzar is looking out upon babylon and describing all this beauty to himself right out of the pride of his heart and god turns him into an animalistic state but at the end of that state Nebuchadnezzar realizes that God alone is sovereign in the heavens, right? And does as he pleases. And so that's another case of a transformative experience. So, I mean, possibly maybe a contingent universalist could acknowledge that, yes, it's possible for someone to come to a hard-hearted state, but God can use transformative experiences to make sure that's never the case, right? So I just think that transformative experience is a way in which God is not violating someone's free will. Like, it's really weird. If someone says, well, perhaps but they don't want transformed experiences. Yeah, but the Israelites didn't want prophets either, and yet God sent them to him. Yeah, they didn't want his... um, Some people could argue that their religious authorities did not want Jesus right present in the temple preaching, and yet he did it anyway. right? So I don't see that as a violation of free will any more than God sending a prophet and his son was a violation of free will.
1: That's a good point. All right, well, let me ask this question. If all will finally be saved then there must be more chances for salvation after death. And a lot of people get hung up on this one. And so what are your thoughts about this?
2: Right. So this is a huge question. So there's several different ways, I think, that we universalists can tackle this question. Uh, One is based on inference, right? So immediately some people, what they want is exegetical proof, it seems, of postmortem repentance. But perhaps universalists can go off of inference. Um, As Christians, we make inferences all the time for doctrines, such as – the doctrine of the hypostatic union or the doctrine of the Trinity. I mean, these are inferences based on scripture. I don't know how many people would say the doctrine of the Trinity is just based on exegetical work. I think they say there are inferences that we make or take the resurrection, for example. I mean, the apostles did not see Christ rise. Like they weren't present at that moment, but they, uh, they knew that he died, right? There were people who saw him die and then they saw him alive. So they could guess at what happened in between, right? You're making inference. Well, mm-hmm. he was dead. Now he's alive. Something must have happened then. And as universalists, why can't we do the same thing, right? Like, if the idea is that, well, we have these passages that say that all will be saved, and we have these passages that um, seem to indicate that some die in a non salvific state, then why can't we just go based off of an inference and say that there's going to be something that's going to happen at the point of death or after death, right? That just seems like a valid inference any more than the inferences that other Christians draw. Now, it's weird when some will reject that, the You know, like we allow inferences when it supports our doctrines, but not when it supports ones that are opposed to us. So what people usually want at the end of the day is solid exegetical proof. So the question is, can universals provide that? And I think, of course, we can. So there are several things that we can do here. First is, before even touching post-mortem repentance, we can talk about resuscitations. So, for example, I'm thinking of the prophet Jonah. Now, one question I have to ask myself is, did the prophet Jonah die if this story is to be taken historically, right? Which I have my doubts, but many of my readers will probably think that this was a literal story. So if that is true, that it was a literal story and the prophet um, Jonah rejected God's calling to Nineveh for the reasons that he lays out, because he knew that God was a God of mercy, uh, do we think that he died in a salvific state? Right? Um, I don't think so, right? Looking at the text, I don't think he did. And yet, we see in Jonah chapters uh, 2 and 3, he prays to God. And there's language that some have looked at to postulate whether or not Jonah actually died, right? We have this language of how he goes down to Sheol. We have this mm-hmm. language where God says, arise and go to Nineveh. Well, that same word that God uh, says to Jonah, arise, is used by Jesus when he tells uh, the little girl, Jairus' daughter, little girl, I say to you, arise, right? The same word that's used for resurrection by Jesus to the little girl, Jairus' daughter, is used by God to Jonah. So there's some who also, Jesus makes a parallel to Jonah. When he's when he's asked for a sign, he says, none will be given you but the sign of Jonah, right? And this parallel would make even better sense if Jonah was dead. So if it was true that Jonah died, and if it is agreed that Jonah died in a non-selfific state, then what is God doing in raising Jonah? I mean, doesn't he know Hebrews 9, 27 through 28 is the point for man wants to die and then comes judgment, right? Um so that's a case of resuscitation. But then what about Jairus' daughter? What about Lazarus? You know, what about the widow of Nain's son? These aren't strictly resurrections as Jesus is the first fruit of resurrection, but these are resuscitations and God delivered them. So it's very weird to me when someone just quotes Hebrews 9 27 through 28. And then I ask them, well, what do you do with these examples? Is God cheating? Right. Um, you also have a legend in church history of that of Pope Gregory who would mourn over the state of Emperor Trajan every time he passed by his statue and would hope that God could bring him back so he could hear the gospel. And and as some people record, again, this is a legend, um, Trajan was raised. And Dante actually mentions this in Divine Comedy about Trajan being in purgatory and in heaven. Um, and so we have these examples in church history. We have these examples. Even today, you hear stories from around the world in evangelism. You have these examples in the Bible of resuscitations. So to the person who says that at the moment of death is decided— I just provide all these cases of resuscitation and say, well, what on earth do you do with these, right? Where they weren't all Christians when they died. And for, for some of the stories they became Christians after is God cheating. No, I think it's revealing the heart of God who desires that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Right? So the, those are resuscitations though. That, that is an argument from inference, but the last one is the one that people really want, which is the exegetical argument for postborn repentance. Right. Um, so there are a few passages we could go to. We could go to, I think, Revelation uh, 21 through 22, where we had this image of those who are outside the lake, uh, the, that being the nations of the earth and the kings of the earth, how they're bringing their glory into the New Jerusalem, signified as a they're outside.
1: The, you mean they're outside the gates, not outside the lake? They're outside of the gates of the they're New Jerusalem. They're outside the Jerusalem. gates, yeah. They're, they're in yeah. the lake. They're in the lake. Well, yeah. they were in the lake. Yeah, they, were, were they in the lake? or were, And it seems if you read Revelation – that all the people who didn't have their names in the book of life would have been in the lake of fire, then suddenly we see them outside the gates. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. Again, there's many different ways to read it. So I'm just providing one, which is if some were to have a futurist reading, of revelation which just say this is depicting events that will happen in the future. So if that is the case, and if some people think that there was a great white throne judgment in which you had Satan, the Antichrist, the nations, kings that are thrown into the lake, and now you have them coming in. So this would be an occasion where we could say, okay, this is after the general judgment. We had these individuals entering into the church, right? As the New Jerusalem is signified as a holy of holies and as the church itself, the pride of Christ. And so I would think this would be an example on a futurist view of post-mortem repentance, right? A very popular one. In fact, David, I think I told you, I remember being in Sunday school, a very young age, we were reading through Revelation, we came to this passage, and I was shocked, I was like, wait a minute, I mean, these people, the only people outside of Jerusalem at this point are those in the lake, and so I asked my teacher, I said, so do they get another chance, and my teacher just kind of like went on, <laughs> so it was pretty funny, so, so that would be a passage, but there are some who... They don't like apocalyptic literature just because of how dense it can be and how confusing, how many different interpretations. So they might not agree with that text. Right. So do we have any others? Well, I think we do. I think 1 Peter 3 and 4 are the obvious ones. Right. And Martin Luther uh, once said that this is a marvelous text, but he has no idea what it means. (laughs) And you have many different readings of this text. Some say that it is of Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, preaching through Noah Some say that this is a reference to Enoch going down and delivering uh, basically sign of judgment, proclamation of judgment to the individuals. I don't think those readings work at all. I mean, I think the strangest one is the one through Noah. It's kind of odd. I mean, the pre-incarnate Christ is not taking up space, right? He's not a spatial entity. So to say that he's going somewhere like he went, it's just kind of odd to me. Uh, I think if you read the text for itself, it seems that it's following a certain pattern, right, where it's following the pattern uh, of Christ's death, Christ's uh, burial, then Christ's ascent Christ's resurrection, and Christ's ascension. Right, and so I detail this in my book. So I would say that we have strong evidence for postmortem repentance in First Peter three and four. Now there's some like Millard Erickson who will concede this and say, okay, maybe that's the case, but but this text only shows that there might be a chance of repentance for those who died in the flood. Right, to go beyond that is just wrong because the text does not allow that. Right. So, how do we approach an argument like that made by Millard Erickson? Well, I think one thing to take into account is that the generation that died during the flood, as far as some of the biblical authors see it, is probably one of the wickedest generations, if not the wickedest generation that ever lived. Mm-hmm. And so, if the gospel was preached to the wickedest generation that ever lived post mortem, then from whom shall it be withheld post mortem, right? Now, In response to that, you have certain people like Wayne Grudem and Justin Bass and Ronald Nash who say, well, but this runs against the context. Because in the context, Peter is talking about those who are being persecuted, right? Ministers, especially, are being persecuted for the faith. I mean, why bother being persecuted for sharing the faith if eventually these people will hear it anyway? Well, I can tell you why. Um, If Christ has gone to the wickedest generation that ever lived and preached the gospel from whom should we withhold the gospel i think this is really powerful like i've been in a church where when the crisis was going down in afghanistan that being the withdrawal of u.s forces there were certain individuals in the church who were furious and they said that we should not preach the gospel to those in afghanistan the taliban and those under their rule like the gospel should be withheld from them now they were veterans so I can, I can understand their angst and where they're coming from, but that just seems deeply unchristian, right? The idea that we should not preach the gospel to these individuals. If Christ has gone to the wicked generation and preached the gospel, I think that sets a precedent for whom we should preach the gospel to. So I think those are probably some of the most powerful texts. I see them kind of as obvious texts. I think the reason why they're less than obvious is because people try to harmonize this with Luke 16 and Hebrews 927 through 28 and not because of really exegetical arguments.
1: I did an interview with Dr. Richard Bernier and his um, his background is with the Ukrainian, I think it's the Ukrainian Catholic Church. It's a Eastern, it's a Catholic church, but it's the Eastern Catholic Church. And uh, I wasn't very familiar with that, but he wanted to point out that in the early centuries of the church, that the early Christians prayed for the dead, mm-hmm. and that that's sort of prior to any formal theological construction, but just that that, that the very fact that, that they would pray for the dead indicates that there was sort of an early Christian consciousness of, of there still being hope for them.
2: Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. So prayer for the dead is something that I also address in my book that I think you can actually find prayers for the dead in the New Testament. It seems, for example, that we have a case where Paul prays for Onesiphorus, where whenever Onesiphorus is mentioned, he's mentioned uh, in the past tense, and whenever his family is mentioned, they're mentioned in a different tense. So there are many scholars who think that Onesiphorus is deceased at this point, but God, uh, but Paul prays for him and for his um, salvific state, it seems. And so this would be a case of it seems, prayer for the dead in the New Testament itself. But this is also prevalent throughout the early church history and even to the present. You have C.S. Lewis, for example, who says that, of course, he prays for the dead. It seems like just such an obvious thing to do. I'm thinking of the case of uh, Perpetua, where in her diaries, if it be her diaries, we have an account of how she sees her brother in a seems a tormentuous state, and she prays on behalf of her brother, and he's delivered, it seems, from that state. Uh, You have many occasions such as that. I'm thinking of the Apocalypse of Peter is probably one of the most notable cases where it seems that there were later scribes who did not like what they took to be an originist theme where the elect pray on behalf of the damned and God gives the damned a baptism in the Acherusian Lake so that they can partake in his kingdom. Um, it's not just here. You see an interpolation, it seems, to the civilian oracle by later Christians where there's this similar idea you also find, I think, in the Apocalypse of Elijah, where consistently the elect pray for the damned and God delivers the damned. So this is really interesting, I find, all these texts. That you have this case in the early church of this idea of intercession on behalf of the damned, and God grants that intercession to them, right? Mercy triumphs over judgment. So I think that a strong case can be made for prayers for the dead that would play into the idea of post-mortem repentance.
1: Well... Okay. Let's move on. And I want to talk a little bit about annihilationism and also a position called reconciliationism. And this has to do with the idea that, okay, well, eternal conscious torment is, is a pretty awful thing to consider. So maybe annihilationism might be a a better option and maybe God can still be good and just let people annihilate themselves. Or I think you You're talking about the idea of reconciliationism, where people are somehow in a reconciled state in hell, but they're just not in heaven. Um, So why don't you talk a little bit about those two ideas?
2: Sure. Yeah, I think one of the things to acknowledge at the outset is that we need to acknowledge our sources of authority when we're addressing the subject. So, for example, if you were a moderate to liberal theologian, you may place less authority on the words of Jude and Peter and what they thought are more on your moral intuitions, for example. Um, so Chris State, for example, recently did an interview, I think it was a couple months ago, in which he said that he found it plausible that individuals in hell might be obliterated by some sort of material fire. I mean, this is how God's going to end them, is through fire. I don't know about you, David, but I have seen several scarring videos like, were posted by ISIS of them burning people in cages, right? And you read accounts of people being burned alive. And I think that's just hideous. It seems to me like my moral intuition screamed to me that this is unjust. And this is exactly what some annihilationists are postulating, that, oh, this is how God's going to deal with the damned. That's just, really? This is the being that which none greater can be conceived? This is how he handles these (laughs) individuals, (laughs) right? No, I'm sorry, No. Um, right, so if, you're, if you place a great deal of authority on your moral intuitions, no matter how many exegetical arguments people try to make from Second Peter and Jude that this is how the damned are going to die, you might place more emphasis on your moral intuitions, right? So that's just something to take into account. Uh, but what do we do with annihilationism? Well, for starters, I want to point out that many annihilationists don't like to be called annihilationists, right? Right. Um, People want to have a term that really sounds much more pleasing these days, right, appealing. Mm-hmm. And so we, we want to be conditionalists, right? We're, we're conditionalists. We're not annihilationists. Give me a break, okay? You can be a conditionalist and be a universalist, but I don't see how you can be an annihilationist, universalist. Now, here's what I mean. Um, if I was to say that all those who put their faith in Christ will receive immortality, right? That's proposition A. And the proposition mm-hmm. B is not all persons will put their faith in Christ and receive salvation, right? Proposition B. So proposition A, Proposition B. Right, on its own, Proposition A does not entail Proposition B. It simply does not. Because it could be the f- case that all persons will put their faith in Christ and receive immortality. So you could be a conditionalist and still be a universalist. I, right, because I, I, the I,
1: condition would be satisfied.
2: Exactly, right? If I tell my ch- seven children, um, all those who raise their hands will receive pizza, and all some of them raise their hands, and they all receive pizza. Right? It was conditional, but they met the condition. Mm-hmm. So I really think it's sneaky when they when they try to pivot to oh, we're conditionless because they're trying to remove it seems the harshness from the name that comes with it. Um, and so I think that they should just be honest and stick to the term annihilationist. That better communicates what they really believe. I think at least. So right. So what do we make of annihilationism? Well, um, I think there are several takeaways that we can have. Uh, the first is when we look at scriptural arguments for annihilationism, I don't really find them all that compelling. Uh, and one of the reasons is because of the all passages that we have, uh, that being universalist. It doesn't seem like it mashes well with annihilationism. So imagine if I were to say, for example, um, all persons in China, I mean, all eligible voters in China voted for President Xi right i know this isn't the political system that's set up there but but just bear with me right if this was the case all eligible voters in china voted for president Xi. Um, you might say wow that's incredible that's a landslide that's unprecedented but then what if you found out that actually a large amount of eligible voters were executed because they didn't like president Xi, mm-hmm. and which well it's really all that remain voted for president Xi." <laughs> like well all that remain. I mean, that seems deceptive, right? That doesn't seem to mean at all what you presented it as. Likewise, the passages that seem to be the all passages, like 1 Corinthians 15, 22, or Romans 5, 18 through 19, don't seem to teach those who remain. It seems to teach all those who fell in Adam, or account of Adam, or because of Adam, right? That the whole kaboodle, mm-hmm. that that is the same group that is received salvation, that is united to Christ. So It's not all who remain, right? So I I just don't think it makes sense of the universalist passages at all. Uh, Besides that, there are some theological problems that I think that annihilation has. So for example, what do we make of the atonement where it's said that um, in Hebrews that Christ died a death like ours, right? In order to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, he died a death like ours. Okay, so if the death, that we deserve is the second death on annihilationism, which is like permanent cessation of conscious existence. If that is the case, then was Jesus permanently like wiped out of existence? I mean, does that reduce the Trinity to a binity? Right? Um, does mm-hmm. that or does that break apart the incarnation, which would seem to go against some of the creeds of the early church? Um. Uh, The hypostatic union, I should say. Right. So I think that there's a very high theological cost to pay. And so annihilationists, if they try to say, well, you know, the death is a little bit different in the case of Jesus, then Jesus just simply didn't die a death like ours. And this doesn't make sense on just about any atonement theory, especially those Calvinists who hold the PSA, right, where Christ dies as our substitute. Um, He simply just does not on annihilationism. So you have that theological problem. Another one that you have is it seems to be double jeopardy, right? So on annihilationism, some annihilationists, they'll say, well, you know, I mean, it's not really cessation of conscious existence. It's more that to be living is to be embodied and breathing. And so to be dead is to be disembodied and breathing. Okay, well, if the wages of sin is death, then don't I suffer the penalty. Doesn't everybody suffer the penalty of that just when they die, Right? And, so the, and then if, if why on earth does God raise them? You know, So God raises them and then kills them again. It seems like they're paying twice for the same crime, right? Double jeopardy. And they'll try to have answers to that. They'll say, well, you know, but God, that's not really – it's not just about dying, but it's about the particular death that they die that counts. So, for example, if you had a Nazi criminal that he deserved hanging, but he took a cyanide pill and escaped it. Well, yeah, he died, but he didn't die the necessary death. And so that's why they need to be raised, is to die the necessary death. I'm sorry, it still doesn't work, especially on meticulous divine providence. Because on a Calvinist view, God could make the world such that the individuals do meet their fitting death in this lifetime and thus don't need to be raised. Um, Some people say, well, they need to be raised in order for God to judge them. Nonsense. God can judge them at the point of death, right? At the point of death, God can judge them right then and there and say tough cookies, you know, you cease from existence (laughs) right now. Um, Some will say, well, you know, maybe what it is, is that God raises them on annihilationism so that the saints can be vindicated, right? Seeing them judged. Really? I mean, this seems to be the worst one yet. So you're telling me that let's just say my little sister for example is raised to be damned that i'm gonna be sitting there go whoop whoop you know <laughs> my sister's <laughs> dead um and also i don't think that i need to be present as someone's judgment to be vindicated so adolf hitler and the nazi regime when it toppled for example i bet there were lots of people worldwide who though they weren't present there they still felt vindicated huzzah huzzah the regime has fallen right so you don't have to be present there to feel vindicated so then it just seems like the resurrection itself, the general resurrection of the wicked and the damned, like a wicked and the righteous, just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Why on earth does God raise the damned? Why bother? Some will say, Well, the last one, David, I'll say, Well, perhaps God raises the damned so that they'll suffer you know pains of sense too. Right? Not just pains of loss, but pains of sense. So they'll go through this cycle of torment before God will annihilate them. But but if annihilation itself is a permanent, infinite consequence, right? Then, really, seriously, why do they have to go through this time of pains of uh, sense? It it just seems vindictive. Uh, One final thing to note about annihilationism before I want to hear your thoughts, David, is I think it's just enormously unloving. So I think part of what it means to be loving, right, especially for God, is that God, he values the existence of something and wants to be in relation to that something, right? So in the case of humans. God values the existence of humans, he values the flourishing of humans, and he seeks to be in relationship to humans. Okay, how does this work on annihilation exactly? So let's take valuing the existence of something. How does God value the existence of something by annihilating it? <laughs> uh, valuing the flourishing something. How does God value the flourishing of something by annihilating it? Last thing, valuing, valuing the relationship with something. Okay, how does God value a relationship with something that he wipes out of existence. I mean, uh, as one person cheekily push, uh, put it, that's kind of putting a whole new connotation on friend zoning somebody. Right? Uh, I don't think God puts people in the friend zone by annihilating them. So the love of God just seems to make no real good sense on annihilationism. Um, R. Zachary Manis had a really good example that I uh, put it to Greg Boyd, and Greg Boyd liked it as well, which goes like this Imagine that you had a wayward son. Right, who got a really bad disease, right, uh, almost terminal disease, and the medication was far too expensive for him to buy. And but he asked you, right? So he, so he only wants you to pay for the medication, which is nothing to you, all right. Let's say that you, I mean, you, David Artman, are the next Jeff Bezos out there, all right? You, you, you mm-hmm. got plenty, and. He doesn't want a relationship with you, but he just wants you to provide the medicine. Now, as a loving father, would you still provide the medicine? What do you think, Dave? Would you? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that I would hope that if I was a loving father, that I would do the same. So although this individual does not want to be related to me, this individual still wants the benefits that I can provide, at least some of the benefits. And as a loving father, I might still see A need or way of providing these benefits to my son. Likewise, why is it that God doesn't provide a different alternative other than annihilation to those who don't want to be in heaven, those who don't want to be related to him, yet still want to exist? Because I have a hard time believing that all persons would just simply want to cease to exist, right? Uh, So those are some just general concerns with annihilationism. On the whole, I, I hate annihilationism. I think that how annihilationists get away with it is they constantly say like, oh, we're not as bad as eternal conscious torment.
1: Yeah, that was – I was going to ask you to talk about that I, because I – if you want to say that, I was kind of guilty of that, that, that I thought, well, maybe if the final end of the wicked is the people that are just resolutely determined to oppose God and love – at every single chance, if their final end is non-existence, well, um, maybe that's something they brought on their self. But, but you make a good point that that God allowing that to come to pass, the final annihilation, uh, deprives them of the, of the ultimate uh, beatific vision, the ultimate union with God. So could you talk about that?
2: Sure. Yeah. It, it seems to me that annihilationism is an irreparable harm, right? A, a, a harm that befalls an individual that even divine omnipotence itself cannot repair based on a certain metaphysics, if, if something is truly annihilated, right? As annihilationists think is the case on annihilationism. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so I would point out that there are many people who come to the Christian faith precisely because they're in search of immortality, right? They think about the cessation of conscious existence and it frightens the bejesus out of them i talked to dale allison about this who he's also talked to folks who they're terrified of ceasing to exist more so than being in a state of relative torment it depends all depends on how extreme the torment is um, mm-hmm. so for example if what we're imagining is c.s lewis's gray town some people say i would rather put up with that than ceasing to exist altogether because that deprives me of all goods right all goods that come with it mm-hmm. and so i would rather exist in c.s lewis's gray town than embrace some sort of annihilationism, right? Um, and I can see how someone would think this way. And so if that is the case, and as Gene Spiegel and Chris Date and some annihilationists have sought to make the case that annihilationism is harsher than eternal torment, then this, I think, takes the wind out of the sails of annihilationism because I think annihilationism has been cruising on the idea that they're morally superior – to EST, eternal conscious torment, right? Like this is less unjust of God to do. But as I've told you, David, even if it is less unjust, that doesn't make it just. But I even don't know if it's less unjust because God is the, he is depriving someone of all goods, right? Including the good of existence itself. And so at this point, I think you have a case of an irreparable harm. I think you strengthen the case of the problem of evil, especially the evidential problem of evil. I think it leads to questioning God's goodness. And I have even greater questions dependent on someone's theory of divine providence. So there are a lot of Calvinists who are annihilationists. And I, for the love of God, I simply don't get it. Right? Like We're talking about a God whose grace can turn people who are wolves into sheep. Right? We're talking about someone who can make it come most freely to him. And yet mm-hmm. God annihilates this individual. So some say, well, God does this as a manifestation of his power. I'm sorry, David. He wants a greater manifestation of his power to turn Richard Dawkins from, from giving a middle finger to God to dancing jubilantly before his throne. To me, that's a far greater demonstration of power. So if that's all it comes down to is, oh, a demonstration of power, I don't get it. Um, then, on the other hand, there are some who embrace a free will version of annihilationism, such as uh, Michael Jones of Inspiring Philosophy. Um and others like uh, Jonathan Van Vick. But even this, I see a problem scripturally. So, for example, annihilationists like to use Matthew 10, 28 as proof of annihilationism, right? That God will destroy both soul and body in hell. This is the favorite proof text of annihilationism. But I think you run into problems if this is really talking about hell, right? The eschatological state on free will annihilationism because it says that to fear the one and so if they're taking the one to be god so to fear god who can destroy both soul and body and hell well this doesn't make much sense on free will annihilation because shouldn't you fear yourself right because god's not really necessarily doing anything i mean this is natural consequences of your own actions so god's really not doing anything right he's he just he's allowing you to do this and actually if he's um and some people he's these people perhaps they just reduce themselves to animalistic state and God wipes them from existence, but why fear him? It seemed like this is a good thing that he's doing right at this date in the game. So that favorite text of Annihilationist just seems to run into problems on a free will view because it doesn't make any sense why you should fear God it makes more sense that you should fear yourself. Um, so, so yeah.
1: Well, let's move on to kind of a final um, of the, of our planned questions which is uh, that a a real challenge for modern Christianity is to show the goodness of God. Why do you think Christian universalism offers the best vision of a purely good God?
2: We also have a question on reconciliationism. Um,
1: Okay, yeah, we didn't get to that. Yeah, Let's talk about the reconciliationism, then we'll get the goodness of God.
2: Yeah, because the goodness of God, I mean, that's how I end my book. You know, you can't steal the thunder. Um,
1: Okay, yeah, talk about that reconciliationism.
2: (laughs) Right, so reconciliationism some people when i first heard this I was kind of confused because david and i often refer to universalism as ultimate reconciliation right Right. to kind of i i for me personally to stay away from pluralism is why i often refer to my position as ultimate reconciliation but i started noticing that there was another view called reconciliationism and that's when it frustrated me now this is the view of people like henry blocker sean bawalski indy Savo. it's a growing becoming popular variant of traditionalism um similar to father james dominic rooney's view but there are some slight differences now um i read sean Bawalski's thesis on this at the university of st andrews several hundred pages long but it was actually very well written it's called the fire that reconciles this responds to annihilationism and edward fudge's book the fire that consumes and it's a spectacular read i i've talked to sean since then and sean is Uh, loves the work that I have done. He told me that he has a book uh, with IVP that's coming out on his thesis that he wrote, and so he'll just be adding some more to it. Sean is also contributing to a two-views book with Chris Stade and Paul Copan and some other authors that are comparing the traditionalist view and the annihilationist view. So I think that Sean is going to be a prominent voice in this discussion, so I want to be someone who could interact with him, right? And as I can see, I'm the first universalist to do so. Right. So what is reconciliationism? Well, reconciliationism is the view that all persons are ultimately reconciled to God, some in some ways and some in all ways, right? So all persons are reconciled in some sense, but some in more sense than one. So what does this mean for the damned? Well, for the damned, it means that at some point, uh, perhaps the judgment, that being the general judgment, the particular judgment, they begin to realize the wrong that they have done, right? Their conscience really begins to work on them. They realize what they have done. They cease from sinning ultimately, right? So they no longer sin and they realize that it is better that they existed for them on the whole, right? So universalists, we often like to make the argument that on certain models of hell people, it would just be the case that it would be better if they hadn't existed at all, right? Then they exist in this sort of hell. But what reconciliationism is trying to say is, well, actually, it's still better that they existed and they didn't exist on this model of hell right So th- I think this is a problem for Universalists who make that sort of argument. Um, yet I still see difficulties with this reconciliationist view. <coughs> First of all, I'm not convinced with how Shambowalsky and such individuals <coughs> exegete Universalist passages right because in exeging these passages they're trying to show that there's no more sin. But I think what these passages are showing is there's precisely no more sin because all are reconciled in all the necessary ways. So especially if you're Reformed, you should have certain problems with this view because Reformed folks think that in order to cease from sinning in all the necessary ways, you need to be regenerate, right? God needs to do Mm -hmm. a special work of grace in you. Um, The idea that you could love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and not be regenerate is just obscene. To reform folk, and I think rightfully so to all Christians. Um, so it seemed like Sean Bowalski wants to say, well, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, your neighbor as yourself isn't necessarily a sin anymore for the damned. And he gives reasons for why he thinks so. I I just simply don't see any place for it, right? So you run into this problem: the problem uh that, well, what about regeneration? How can these persons truly cease from sinning and not be saved? Right? It would seem that. A precondition for ceasing from sinning would be to be in a salvific relationship with the Lord so I have a problem there with reconciliationism also it's kind of weird so these people cease from sinning and yet God doesn't bring them into deeper communion with himself or deeper union with himself mm-hmm. uh, what what I mean could you imagine right that the prodigal is fully reformed right? He, he understands that that's what he's wrong. I mean, he's labored for his father for a while and understands all that he's done is truly penitent for it. His father's like, well, you still got to stay out there in the shack, right? It's like, is this really a loving God who seeks to be in deep communion with him? So I would have questions um, that would be related to the love of God, right? As I said, if the love of God is understood as God valuing one's existence, their flourishing, wanting to be in union with God, I think that this view of reconciliationism comes into question on two of those accounts, right? How does God truly value their flourishing, right? Their flourishing is ultimately found in deep union with him. That is not the case on these individuals if they're still truly damned. Um, So, and how does he value union with them is he's not truly in deepest union with them. So I think this runs into problems with the love of God. But I also think there's one more thing I need to say about this, and that's – I thought about this argument that uh, Shambhal was making, and it reminded me of the problem of Oronophobia. Now, Oronophobia is the fear of heaven, which I experienced to a degree because of the fear of the infinite. Right? I, d- I don't even know what it means to live forever. It's just something that boggles my mind. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are certain people who have been afraid of heaven because they are afraid of the idea of living forever. And Christians have offered different ways of answering this. They have said that, well, those in heaven will experience the beatific vision and will perceive the infinite essence of God. All right. So that's what it takes to overcome this problem of eternal boredom or uh, of oranophobia is the beatific vision. Here's the problem is the damned on most accounts of hell, including reconciliationism, I believe, do not experience the beatific vision. Because a precondition of experiencing the beatific vision is being a saint or properly related to God. And they're not saints or properly related to God. Therefore, they don't experience the beatific vision. So the solution to Aaronophobia is not provided for the damned. And so the damned, they could live like Jeff Bezos. But they live like Jeff Bezos for six billion years. We know individuals like this who they describe their life as tormentuous to them on the whole. Like something is missing from their life, right? Something. And so if we are made for God and our hearts are restless until they rest in him, you can't plug that up with boats. You can't plug that up with new worlds that God could create and say, you know, go explore those worlds. It's not going to work. And so eventually these individuals will feel like Sisyphus, like pushing a, a boulder up a rock, but for what end in mind? And I think that they will see their existence that's not so great for them on the whole in this state, right? So I don't think that reconciliationism adequately addresses the problem of iranophobia, precisely because it denies the beatific vision to these individuals, which is the solution for iranophobia? seems on the whole. So yeah, so those would be some of my concerns with reconciliationism.
1: I, I think this does tie into the question ultimately of the perfect goodness of God, because if God is love, if God is a being of light in whom there is no darkness at all, then if when creation reaches its culmination, if there is some darkness, if there is some unresolved tragic, uh outcome then that seems to rebound all the way back to the beginning to the first cause and it then it it seems to diminish the character of god and that's one of the reasons that uh, my the subtitle of my book is the necessity of christian universalism because i think what's ultimately on the line here is the is the goodness of god mm-hmm. and so could you talk about this a little bit
2: Sure, yeah. Like You just said that um, you would lean, it seems, towards a necessitarian form of universalism, and I think that I would do the same. I think it plays into the goodness of God as why I would be a necessary universalist. Now, I want to point out that in the book, I, I don't necessarily make the case for necessary universalism. I make the case for a bunch of different species of universalism to help as many folks out as I can. But why is it that David and I are necessary universalists? Well, it might be that, let's say that we were Molinists. Don't tell David Bentley Hart. Uh, let's say that we were <laughs> Molinist, and we say that there are an infinite number of feasible worlds, right? Well, it could be that there is no world feasible for God to actualize. That means no world that is available for God to create that contains persons who were ultimately damned, all right? So it could even be on Molinism that you could be a necessary universalist. Um, this should be okay for certain individuals— Because they should know that there are certain worlds that are not feasible for God to actualize because they're at odds with one or more of God's great-making properties. So let's say that there's one world, for example, in which there's uh, one magical planet in which there's a single human-like child who is suspended in flames forever, liquefying flames, and is in chronic pain forever. I think that such a world is not available for God to actualize. That's not a feasible world because it's at odds with one or more God's great-making properties, that being perhaps his love, right, or his goodness, whichever one you would call it. And so precisely because of those reasons, I think that I am kind of compelled towards a necessary form of universalism because I think that such worlds where persons ultimately have a life that is not good for them on the whole – are not feasible for God to actualize because they're at odds with one or more of God's great-making properties. So God's goodness is very much pertinent to this discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, the breaking point um, came several years ago over God's goodness, where I just I couldn't make sense of traditionalist approaches to the problem of hell and other problems like that of biblical genocide in how I understood uh, divine goodness to be, right, as, as seen through the eyes of Jesus Christ especially. Um, this is the case for many individuals. I think of Charles Darwin, for example, who he yeah. said he did not know how anybody could hope Christianity be true because if it, that was to be the case, that would mean that many of his friends and family would be going to hell forever. Um, you have Bertrand Russell, for example, who in his book on why he wasn't a Christian, he said that Jesus of Nazareth had one moral defect and that was that he believed in hell. <laughs> you right. have so many cases this of people who will not come to the faith. Because of the traditional view of hell and annihilationism, does not help many people too who are atheists. Some people it does, but others who see the cessation of existence, something they're trying to escape themselves, and they're told, "Oh, yeah, if you don't, if you don't come to God, He's going to put the gun to your head and blow your brains out." You know, this is the retributive view, not the free will view. Okay, to be fair, uh, but they still don't find this a morally appealing view of God either, and it could be turned off to it. But I have heard certain, uh, especially atheist apologists on YouTube. Who, in their discussions with other apologists, they said that if they were to be open to Christianity, they would have to be some sort of Christian universalist, right? And so, I think we need to see this as an opportunity of witnessing, especially to those who are open to Christianity.
1: I've put it like, or, or, I've put it like this before, actually. This sort, of, this sort of came to me as an image. If you say uh, you have a table where uh, all Christian theologies can sit down. Uh, that that recognize that God is all knowing and all powerful. Well, there are there are lots of Christian theologies that could sit down at that table. But if you had another table, in which you said, now at this table, uh, God is all knowing, all powerful, and all good. I've come to the conclusion that it's really only Christian universalism that can sit. At that table, because uh, I haven't seen another version of Christianity that is able to really secure and protect the ultimate goodness of God against every attack. Uh, but to me, Christian universalism is just is is able is able to do that.
2: No, yeah, um, it reminds me of the ending of my book, which for me was my favorite part of the book. In which I talk about they all lived happily ever after. I mean, I got to end my book with the words the end. It was (laughs) terrific. Yeah. Um, And so, what I did was, I drew in the idea from Tolkien in his essay on fairy stories of that of the eucatastrophe, right? And I thought, well, perhaps for Christianity, the eucatastrophe is that of the apocatastasis panton, you know, the, the restoration of all beings. Perhaps that is the eucatastrophe. And one of the points that Tolkien makes in his essay and his other works, especially discussion with C.S. Lewis, is that fairy stories often point us to the reality of God's story, right? We can find truths in fairy stories that point to truths in God's stories. And so I thought, well, if that's the case, right? And Tolkien emphasizes that we ought to look for something that is often like repetitive, like that of good versus evil, right? Certain themes that we see over and over again. One of the things that I notice rather often in children's stories, which is something that C.S. was talking about, is the idea of them all living happily ever after, right? Uh, we see this over and over and over and over again. I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, now, I guess a rebuttal to that was some people say, well, but we have stories where they don't all live happily ever after, right? Well, what do you do with those? But those stories just aren't as good as the stories where they all live happily ever after, <laughs> right? So, so uh, I'm thinking, for example, of uh, the movie Santa Claus. Where you had Jack Frost, who was the villain. I think he was well played. At least that's my opinion. And uh, his heart was melted by a little girl, right? And he he just joined in the merriment. And this case, they all did live happily ever after, in that sense, as opposed to a story like the Three Little Pigs and the Big Bad Wolf, where one gets boiled alive in a big pot, right? And they don't all live happily ever. Or uh, you have something like uh, Harry Potter where you have people who are killed, right? Who were, it seems, could have been redeemed or something like Star Wars. Like, I remember watching this film, and it just doesn't seem entirely satisfying. Like, well, you know, but but that person, you know, could have been brought back. Um, mm-hmm. So if it is such that we see repetitively in these stories, the idea of them all living happily ever after, and our consciousness points to the fact that when they truly do all live happily ever after, that's the better story, and mm-hmm. God is telling a story, then this should point us to something that we should see or find in god's story that being the mole living happily ever after now tolkien is not the only one to uh, talk about this or who i've um, drawn from but c.s lewis is another figure who in the silver chair he has a scene with Puddleglum, the marsh wiggle where there's the evil witch and she's trying to convince the little children that narnia does not exist right that they only imagined aslan it's just just in their imagination right and Puddleglum responds, you know, you're saying that we just thought this up, right? But this world that you say that I'm just imagining seems to lick the world that you're postulating, right? So I'm going to stand by Narnia, right? I'm going to stand by the play world. Now, mm-hmm. Glum is not saying that I'm just going to stick my head in the sand as some thought him to me. Rather, as C.S. Lewis acknowledges in other essays, he's making an ontological argument. What he's saying is that beauty is an indication of truth, that beauty points us to What is true. And so Puddle Glum is saying, you know, this world that you say I've only imagined seems far superior to the world that you're postulating, which is good evidence that the world you're postulating isn't the true world. And the world that I am is the true world. And so I thought about that. I said, you know, it seems that the world. Right? that is made known to me through Christian universalism, is far superior <laughs> to the traditionalist and annihilationist worlds.
0: Mm-hmm. And if beauty
2: is an indication of truth, that should be an indication that those worlds are not the true ones. Um, I'm reminded finally of the return of the king, where I believe it's Samwise Gamgee. He asks Gandalf, he says, Are all sad things coming untrue? Right. Everybody likes a good, happy ending. Are all mm-hmm. sad things coming untrue? or going to come untrue is what Sam Wise Gamgee asked. Now, Tim Keller uh, said that, yes, this is the case on Christianity due to the resurrection. That Tim Keller is a Cal, was a Calvinist, right? That's mm-hmm. simply not true.
1: He, right? he was but, a Calvinist in the sense that he, he he's he passed, passed away now. He's yeah. passed
2: away, yeah. Um, it's simply not true that the resurrection alone on traditionalism guarantees that all sad things come untrue. It does not come untrue that your loved ones, or just not even perhaps they're not your loved ones, but that persons are ultimately annihilated, their stories ended, or they're tormented forever, right? That does not come untrue. It does come untrue on Christian universalism, right? Mm-hmm. All sad things do indeed come true, right? They shall come all... Untrue. All
1: sad things come untrue. Will
2: come untrue, yep. Yeah. They shall all live happily ever after. <laughs> right? And so you're right. This story, if it's a sign... Of that if, if beauty is a sign of what is true, then I think that this is a strong argument for Christian universalism.
1: Well, um, so now you have made, your, your book is out, you've made an airtight, it seems to me, you know, kind of argument for Christian universalism. I can understand why people, maybe back at Liberty University, would still be a little hesitant to, to jump on board with you. But now you're at Princeton uh, Theological Seminary, And, um, it, it, you know, it would, it would seem that that's a much more, um, would be an environment that would be much more open, uh, to this kind of, to this kind of thinking. So has your uh, presence there or the book that you've written or the case that you've been making for Christian Universalism, do you see that it has made any headway with any of your fellow classmates at 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 Princeton, or that it has um, maybe changed the discussion a little bit about about Christian universalism at the seminary.
2: Sure, yeah. So um, so it, it did get a good amount of attention from a lot of the students there because if you can tell, David, I'm not exactly shy.
1: Uh, yeah, so and was- that's a pretty big deal if you're in a master's in a master's program and you get a a, a book published by Wiffenstock that gets such good reviews from other major scholars out there. I mean. Uh, that doesn't usually happen.
2: Yeah. So I, I don't know if your listeners know. So if I could real quick, I want to tell them, some of the folks who've endorsed this, that that's okay. So I have here, let's see, Douglas Campbell, Jerry Walls, Brian Zond, Gregory Boyd, David Bentley Hart, Dale Allison, yours truly, David Artman, Randall Rouser. right? These are world-class theologians, right? Especially you, David. and <laughs> uh, and, and one of them, of course, is Dale Allison who um, I had several conversations with him on the subject of Christian universalism. And he talks about this in his book, Night Comes. He has a chapter mm-hmm. that um, kind of addresses this. He has another chapter, it's called Resurrecting Jesus, in which he also addresses this topic. And he's a hopeful universalist, not necessarily in the Balthas- like in, not the Balthazarian sense, in the Rooney sense, I should say, where it, it, James Rooney, I would describe as a sort of hopeful contingent universalist. Uh, but he's more so than that. It's more hopeful in the sense that he hopes that the Bible is true, right? that, that the claims that it makes are true. And that, um, and so that in that sense, he's a hopeful universe. So we, we had some good back and forth discussion of this. Uh, also, some of the other professors are more open than others. It depends on whether they have a deep attraction for Karl Barth or not. Um, so those professors who aren't too big on Karl Barth, I've had some wonderful discussion with them. Uh, They loved the book, especially because some of them had a connection to Douglas Campbell. In fact, Douglas Campbell helped one of the professors who loved my book uh, get her post at Princeton Theological Seminary. She's a wonderful lady, Lisa Bowens. Um, So she loved the book. Um, There are other classmates there who purchased the book, love the book. We had some great discussions. Um, Their only holdup really was the uh, choice model of hell, the free will, right? How is God not forcing, coercing? Once I was able to, I think, somewhat explain it, it made sense to them, right? So Christian universalism due to many of the beliefs held at the seminary is rather prominent among its members who do hold an eschatology. So I should put it this way. Those who believe in an afterlife at Princeton uh, Theological Seminary the majority of them seem to hold some view of Christian universalism. There are uh, some Calvinists there who I've met. Uh, There are wonderful individuals, uh, but some of them are annihilationists and some of them are traditionalists. And this is mainly I see in my discussion with them due to the influence of Jonathan Edwards, right? Jonathan Edwards has spoken. The matter is closed. I should have known. Mm -hmm. Um, The last, like I said before, is, is the Bardians. They're the, they're honestly the hardest group there is they, they do not like the traditionalist view at all, those who I've met there. So it's either some sort of free willed annihilationism or universalism. They are banking on universalism, but they can't commit all the way because you know, they're, they're God just has to be free. Right? There just has to be that option open. It just it just has to be there. So even if it's infinitely unlikely, we still have to say you know it's open there. So they're the hardest nut to crack. But I would say that the reception has been rather positive at Princeton. Now, I would add, though, David, that the reception has been rather positive at Liberty, too. Though, I, I, don't, I have to be careful about names in this case, right? But mm-hmm. I have been in contact with certain professors there. I'm hoping uh, to get my book into one of the classes there. And they are professors who were actually open to Christian universalism. But it's different than at Princeton, where it seems to be that at Liberty, people want to be more persuaded on the basis of exegesis. Where in the case of Princeton, people want to be persuaded that this wasn't going against C.S. Lewis's "The Great Divorce," you know, free will approach, right? So, uh, in one case, or
1: the or or the sort of the Bart the Bart approach, which he says that he um, he doesn't teach it, but he doesn't not teach it.
2: (laughs) Exactly. Yes. Um, But there are. I've met many conservative evangelicals at Liberty, and even after I left, I have received emails or direct messages from many of these folks. Who They know about my case. They've been interested in my case, and they ask questions. So I had one individual, for example, who I did not have the pleasure of knowing while I was at Liberty. He was a graduate before me, but he messaged me after, and he asked me several questions on Christian universalism, and I answered um, as many of them as I could to the best of my abilities, and he found that many of them were adequate, and he went on and purchased my book, right? So um, I would not count out hope against Liberty, right? It's, it's not too far off from the Lord. Uh, but yeah, that's what I would say about those two schools. Oh, and, and, um, Wheaton would be another one where it would where Wheaton is another, um, it's not as fundamentalist I would say in my experience as Liberty, right. But I was still considered as very conservative evangelical mm-hmm. and I've had professors and students from Wheaton message me those in the graduate and undergraduate program about my book. And some of them have been persuaded. So yeah, it's been, uh, it's been very positive feedback from many conservative evangelical institutions.
1: Well, I'm really glad that your book is out there now and that it's a resource that can be used and considered. It's been a long time. It's been a long time coming, and I've I've been enjoying seeing the progress that you've making on it and getting a chance to look at some of the early drafts and the things that you're that you're working on and to watch your scholarship come along and to reach to this point. So, uh, so well done, Andrew. Proud of you. Glad that you have got this out, and uh, and you know you're just such you have so much energy and enthusiasm for this uh, for this topic. So I'm I'm looking forward to a lot of
0: continued conversations in the uh, in the years to come.
2: Thank you, David. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David, or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.